right. Hello, everybody. I've officially turned the recording on, so that means class has started. Um, we are on lesson five, which is found. The text is on 109. 109. Um, before I begin the lesson and before I forget two public service announcements for this learned and esteemed group, Number one, David Epstein, a rabbi from Israel who grew up here, um, is going to be speaking at the congregation over the course of Shabbat. I believe if you call tomorrow, you can still reserve your place at the dinner Friday night, especially if you do it in the morning. Um, and he's going to be speaking uh, at that dinner. And then he will be speaking during the Devar Torah slot on Shabbos and also after, you know, post-Kiddush uh, she or lesson um, on Saturday afternoon. So he's a nice guy, a smart guy, and uh, will offer a nice perspective. So come and learn with him. And then we were such great hosts to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum um, suburban program last year. They asked us to host it again, which is just a benefit to us because <coughs> it means fantastic programming is right here at home. Um, it's uh, Film screening of Claude Lanzmann, Specters of the Shoah. It'll have also the uh, filmmaker will be with us and a special uh, archivist and film expert from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's um, DC staff will be here as well. Um, it's Monday at 7 p.m. This coming Monday, the 14th. Does anybody want one of these to remind themselves of it? Or you can just write it in your planner. Anybody else want to see it? And it's here? It's here. It's here. It's here. Um, so I just figured I should let you know. All right. Let's jump in. Um, we are on chapter 22, verse 20 through 26. For those who were here last time, you will recall that we've moved from a narrative section of the Torah to a more legal section of the Torah. Last time we were dealing with the concept of slavery a little bit, and also the concept of um, damages, you know, if somebody hits somebody else and, you know, puts them in the hospital, so to speak, and dealing with that. In this, we're talking about um, strangers in a strange land, the, the Gerim concept, um, and what the Torah in this section has to say about that. So, do I have a wonderful volunteer to read in the English out loud this short uh, we have a short Torah text um, that they picked for us this time. Anybody willing to read out loud? Going once, going twice, sold to Larry. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not ill-treat any widow or orphan. If you do mistreat them, I will heed their outcry as soon as they cry out to me, and my anger shall blaze forth, and I will put you to the sword, and your own wives shall become widows and your children orphans. Wow. If you lend mm -hmm. money to my people, to the poor among you, do not act toward them as a creditor. Exact no interest from them. If you take your neighbor's garment and pledge, you must return it to him before the sun sets. It is his only clothing, the sole covering for his skin. And what else should he sleep? Therefore, if he cries out to me, I will pay heed, for I am compassionate. All right, like I often ask, I've learned that this helps. If you wouldn't mind taking a, another minute or two and reread it to yourselves. Sometimes hearing it out loud or reading out loud is doesn't sink in. 
when you have finished rereading it, I would love to open the floor in a very open fashion to any remarkable aspect of this text, anything that you think is interesting or that you troubles you or that you have questions about. The first thing that came to, comes to my mind is that I think it's uh, very easy to say that there's a lot of people that are guilty of all of these things. It's, it's like very, unlike uh, the Ten Commandments, which seem pretty uh, ominous, these seem to be more uh, societal uh, cues, and it seems like, uh, I, I mean, I said, uh-oh, when I read three or four of these. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the interest part is interesting, but I, I always joked among my family, I thought interest was kind of, was kind of a Jewish uh, creation. Um, mm -hmm. and, and some of these other stuff. So that, that was the first thought that came to my mind. Great. So lovely observation that these are much more, what did you talk about, societal cues, I think you used the word, I like that. It's like these are things that we are dealing with all the time as society, you know, how we treat the stranger, the orphan, the widow, how we loan and, and, and do business transactions with our money um, and how we interact with the needy and the poor in our community. These might be things that are a little less, you know, as you use the word ominous. And I thought also you might have meant, and I don't know if you meant this, so I'll just put words in your mouth. Um, uh, like some of the Ten Commandments are, it's not that it's obvious, but it's kind of obvious, you know, it's don't kill, okay, I'm not a murderer, you know. Um, don't, a lot of the things that they ask you not to do, you're kind of like, okay, yeah, I get that. I understand why it's in there. I'm, I'm not that much in danger of doing those things. These, these are things that we struggle with. Yeah. Well, these, this isn't about your fellow. Mm -hmm. These are about the vulnerable in the community. Okay. So now we get a little bit of um, a question. I'll turn what you made as a statement into a question. What is actually the nature of this text? What is it really addressing? And Larry says it's addressing, he's putting a theme on it, this is addressing the vulnerable in our society. Who are the vulnerable listed here, for example? Well, those who don't have a man. Right. The widows and the orphans. Um, the stranger, who mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily have support. And even the interest category is... It's, it's assumed you only would borrow money if you were poor. Poor. So it's not that, a business transaction. It's so you're pointing out another like level, you know, of question that you said as a statement. I'll turn as a question. Is this is this statement specifically about lending money and no interest directed only to lending to the poor, or is this reflective of a general principle? And it also applies to the poor. Um, and then Larry going backwards to what he said before, the, the, the categories here are orphan, widow, stranger, and poor. And, the, and Larry is qualifying them, uh, classifying them, excuse me, as the, did you say vulnerable? Absolutely. Vulnerable in, in our society. Great. All these are wonderful thoughts. Yes. So to, to build upon Larry's point, um, I would uh, love to hear your thoughts or anyone's thoughts related to the context in which these statements are made. Mm -hmm. In other words, sitting here in 2016, it's familiar to us to think about the poor or the widow or the orphan and to extend a hand to them. Good point. But 
at this point in history, back then, though there were great civilizations in the world, uh, nonetheless, to my knowledge, there was not a great context for this kind of thinking, for this kind of culture, to reach out to those who are less fortunate, which would make this even more radical, if you will, mm -hmm. than as we look at it now, which is a lesson, perhaps quaint, perhaps charming, perhaps perhaps a, a teaching, but it's very familiar to us. How familiar to, to people at that time were these sorts of thoughts, and how, if you will, radical, radicalizing were they for people back then? question, not a statement, but that's what comes to my mind. Right, and my answer is going to be unsatisfying, which is if I was to try to answer you with a scholarly voice, my answer would be, I'm not sure. I'd have to look into that, because I don't really have the breadth or depth of knowledge on that to be able to say for certain. Let's just say it like this. I was always taught, whether it was to make Jews seem good or the Bible seems special, or whether it's really backed up by serious research, which is the part that I don't know, I was always taught that these particular laws were fairly unique. Um, I do know that there are, for numbers of the, a number of them, there are parallels in certain ancient Near Eastern cultures, but usually not the complete set. It's like you find like something about one here and something about the other here, the one that is the, the least common from what I remember being taught is the stranger, right. is the gear. So you're going to find in, most, in many ancient Near Eastern societies some sort of care for the widow, some sort of care for the orphan, some sort of care that was extended to the poor, whether it's this extent or not. But the stranger was kind of like usually seen as you have no rights. I mean, you're... you're, you're, you're you should go where you're from. That's where you have rights. When you decide to live amongst other people, that was your choice, but you're basically, you're not, you don't have the rights, you're not one of us. Um, and they had very few rights, usually the stranger. And that's what I remember. I can't cite you sources. I don't remember which code what came from. Um, I'd have to look all of that up. That's my general, non-scholarly impression of my learning. Yeah. So... At first general. I read this and it looks like a bunch of individual prescriptions along a theme. Mm -hmm. And then I read it collectively and it looks like, which Larry says, you know, take care of the vulnerable. But, but in a tradition where we often give a, a kalal, a general principle, without giving examples always like this, when it starts to give examples, then I start to ask myself, well, what didn't make the list? Like, what about the blind? You know, For sure. How does this read as a text if it starts to enumerate as examples for the general principle in like some groups didn't make the cut? What does that mean? I think it's a good point. They did make the cut. Right. I mean, I think once you, if I can push back, once you open up the door to the widow, to the orphan, and so forth, isn't it a natural progression, though it may not have made scripture? but in commentary and the like to say, we have a theme here. We have a theme here, exactly. So the answer is, of course, yes. And then there are, there are other possible answers, one of which is, this is talking at about a specific way of oppressing a specific category of groups of people. Larry was starting to like imply what that might be, that 
somehow they don't have somebody who's advocating for them. The widow doesn't have a husband, right, who's the legal entity with power in an ancient society. The orphan doesn't have parents um, who would be the legal entity in society with power. Most importantly, the father, but, you know, in this case. um, And the stranger doesn't have any standing in the ancient world, right, so they don't have any legal kind of authority or power or rights. Um, and then you get to the, and those were listed together. And then you almost have the, the poor is dealt with a little bit differently, but still the poor, for financial reasons, is, is, is obliged to somebody, you know? And so he also is lacking in standing or power in, in front of the law or in front of authority. So you could see a theme, whereas the blind, let's say, or somebody who, it's not that they don't have legal power, they may have a parent who's still looking after them and so on and so forth. We want to be compassionate to them, but in a different type of way than maybe. So maybe this is just a subcategory of compassion. So A, you can extend it, like you said. B, maybe this is a, around a, a more specific theme than just the vulnerable. Like there are lots of ways to be vulnerable, but vulnerable in a particular way. And then the third answer could be, theoretically, especially maybe there is a vulnerable in a legal way that's not listed here. And I don't know, the attorneys amongst uh, here maybe can help me out a little bit. But when you write a contract, you do try to give examples, but then you also say something general like in any other, right? You know, this doesn't say and any other. It does, and you, you might be able to wiggle out here and say, well, this only, and you could read it, this only applies to the stranger, the widow, the orphan at the top, and the poor below. Rather than a contract example, I think I would make a statute example. Statute example, sure. But but you you know what I'm right? right. Is am I right. kind of in a ballpark? Yeah. All right. Oh, I told Daryl was next, but. Oh, what a nice guy. <laughs> Go ahead, Ron. On what Bruce and Jay were saying, the reference to. Uh, Stranger it occurs throughout the Torah, and I think it becomes a metaphor for all of the vulnerable. Uh, but I, before we get, go out on that track, what I was going to say, my comment was initially, well, the penalty for oppressing stranger widow and orphan is purely the death penalty from God. Yeah, that's really harsh. You know? I, I was wondering if you would before. bring that up. What? We haven't seen that before. So, yes. It's not really uh, damages. If you hadn't brought it up, I was going to ask you, I mean, there's two aspects to what you just said. One is the extreme nature of the penalty, but I think even more interesting than that personally, maybe it's less interesting to you, but personally for me, what's more interesting is who's carrying out the punishment. Right? right? This isn't like, you know and you owe this amount of money, or he has to, you know, this many lashes, or even the death penalty, which is carried out. Or you put him to death. Right, 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 exactly. Or, yeah, which we carry out the death penalty. This is like, we don't actually do anything. It's God who's going to do it. Um, God's going to take care of this. God, God's self. I mean, that's intense. Right, that is intense. I mean, that is not normal. That is not typical to the way punishments are carried out in the Torah that God, God's self, is the one who's going to carry the punishment and the consequence out. And you can either answer it or leave it a hanging question, and what does that imply about these set, this set of directives, laws, because it's a little unclear what they are, actually. Um, we're going to get into the debate about that, if, depending on how things go tonight, right? Um, Daryl. So, 
it doesn't say more than any other statement in the Torah that shall not wrong a stranger because you were oppressed. So wouldn't that be like number one, you know, for some reason? Because he, he, Hashem, God, God did it was over 20 times. Isn't it in the Torah? I don't know. Oh, yeah, even more than that. It's, one, it's the most oft-repeated phrase, pretty right. much. You said, I don't understand, you and Larry said it was... Other than, like, weak, I am the Lord your God. Or. Weak, weaker. Or I don't understand what you meant by weak. Weaker? The least, the least, um, the most vulnerable? Most, no. What do you mean? Least vulnerable. Who's the least vulnerable? Stranger. No, he's the most vulnerable. Oh, almost? I, I, I yeah. heard you wrong. They have no, no, no standing whatsoever in their society. Is okay. what we're, is that what I was saying to Jay? That in general society, the stranger was seen to have almost no standing and no rights. And so this is the most radical that, wow, God's really standing up for the stranger here. The orphan, the widow, we might say, okay, you know, like, I'm sure other cultures stood up for their orphans and widows, hopefully at least to some degree. But the stranger is the most radical. Yeah. Well, I was just... And then I'd like to start the comments. Okay, well, when, when Jay was making that point, I was thinking almost the exact opposite of what he said. That in terms of context, I'm thinking in today's society, we, you know, we, there's social institutions to help these people. There's government has, you know, things. There's other things that are out there to help these vulnerable people. Now we start sometimes to say, you know, I'd like to help, but maybe I'll make a donation here. I'll do something else. But back then, if you didn't help them, there wasn't any necessarily any safety net. There wasn't anybody else to help them. Mm-hmm. And and so it was almost the opposite. That the context for me was like, well, back then it was like that was pretty important that you better help these people because you could walk away and that's it. They're done. There's nothing. No one's going to do it. So I, I don't know, it's just a reaction. Fabulous. Um, what I would like to do is reverse the order that they put it in. But I want to look at 113. I want to do commentary 2 and commentary 1. For commentary 2, because it's long, um, and hopefully you'll just trust me that I'm going to point out the parts that I think are the most intriguing about it, um, I'll read, and then I'll ask somebody to read commentary 1. And just to tell you, they disagree with these. They disagree with each other about what's the overall, as it says, the title, the overall goal, I don't know, or the nature of this section about what, whether they're laws or not, how they're written, what's the overall goal. So if you look at, he has a fantastic name, Professor Joe Sprinkle. Um, he's an Old Testament professor apparently from Maine. I don't know anything about him other than what you can look up in the little legend at the back, you know. Minnesota. Um, yeah, he's from Minnesota. So what did I say? You said Maine. Oh. Sorry, yes, from Minnesota. Yes, it is. Thank you. I know that Rochester is in Minnesota. All right. So he says the following: Upon close examination, it's clear that this section, Exodus 22, is essentially moral rather than legal in nature. His claim is that what you're reading, don't read it as like a listing of laws, like some sort of code. Read these more as moral principles. Um, what does he mean by this? The calls to empathy, you are sojourners and sympathy, um, it, it is all he has to cover himself, meaning that the empathy part is that we share in that experience. The sympathy part is we don't share, but we're feeling compassionate about it. Um, appeal to the conscience, which is more a moral than a legal category. So he's saying, when I make an appeal to you, and I say to you, hey, do this because you know what that feels like, 
He's saying, that doesn't sound like law to me. That doesn't sound like law. That sounds like a, a moral appeal to your compassion. And this idea of even the sympathy that, hey, don't do this because it's all he, don't take away his garment because it's all he has to cover himself sounds like an appeal to your sympathy, not as a, the code would just say, don't take his garment. Right, not because, hey, don't you feel bad for him because all he has is... So it doesn't come off that way. He's saying the style of it doesn't sound like a code to him. And therefore, it sounds to him like it's more of a, a, a statement of moral principles. The threatened punishment comes not from the state to enforce a law, but from God himself, which is what you notice. And that's also abnormal for laws, right? Like, laws should be like the things that we can adjudicate on some level, not like that God's going to come in and do something. Although, we must recall that it's not entirely, entirely true. There are laws in which it seems like what, what, whatever karate is, if you know, for those of you who know what karate is, it's one of the um, punishments, and karate is very unclear what it is. Um, and one of the definitions that it could possibly be is, is that it either cuts short your life or that you're cut off in the afterlife, and those are clearly God punishments. The only interpretation of karate that could put us back in the we enforce that category is kare could mean expulsion from the community. It means, hey, nice to have you in the community. Out you go after doing that. We want to have nothing to do with you. Um, so it's unclear. But anyway, uh, but from God himself. Okay. Uh, the use of first person and second person IMU places these precepts in the category of moral exhortation rather than law. And then he talks about certain poetic features that prove part of his point. I'm going to skip that paragraph um, for a moment. The various types of oppression described here, though always immoral, can sometimes be legal. For an example, an employer who takes advantage of a desperate poor man by paying extremely low wages would not be acting illegally in a society without a minimum wage law. But the act is condemned morally by these precepts. He's making the point that while some things can be expressed through law, these are actually bigger. There are certain things here that are morally unacceptable, but unless there's an actual law that says not to do it, they might not be illegal, right? But they're still morally unacceptable. Now I'm skipping down to the bottom paragraph. Um, um, These precepts are indeed to avoid the economic enslavement and affliction of the poor and to prevent the wealthy from profiteering from their plight. That's what he summarizes, at least the bottom half of the laws, is that to prevent the economic enslavement and affliction of the poor. It is not just that interest rates were high, though they often were. Rather, interest-taking is seen by the lawgiver as a device for trapping the poor into permanent poverty. So what he's doing is he's reading into the statement, and he's getting to the bigger value behind it. What's the bigger value behind it? Is is that if you you have a poor person, and he needs a loan, and then he defaults on his loan, and then you try to exact everything you can from him, you're just going to keep him poor. And it's just going to keep... It's going to perpetuate his poverty. A wealthy Israelite, according to the text, should give loans to the poor as an act of charity. This is where he makes his jump, because it does not say that in the text. He is reading this and saying, ah, what I think I'm hearing is, therefore, don't loan like it says not to here with the expectation of it getting paid back and you know, really getting every single cent from the person if they default on the loan. Instead, if you're going to loan to a poor person, see that as an act of tzedakah rather than for his own economic gain. Such a precept would be difficult to enforce as law. A wealthy man could simply refuse to lend at all. Right? A law 
can say how to lend, but it would be tough to say to, you know, you could imagine a law, but absent of the example of that in the Torah, there's no law that says you have to lend to somebody. It's your money, right? So it's tough to enforce that precept as law in a sense. Moreover, legal fictions can be devised to avoid the letter of usury law as often happened in the Middle Ages when all interest was taking was legally prohibited. But even if this requirement is impractical as enforced law, it remains valid as a statement of a moral ideal. This is his take. What do you think? Agree? Disagree? It's sort of say, be a menschy kind of guy. A good person. Uh, you know, don't take advantage of people. Be a good guy. True. It's definitely part of it in here, and it's, I think, good advice. Um, I guess the more... The, the next level question is, is, do you agree with his analysis? I mean, we've only read his. It's always You're always influenced by what... You know, you hear somebody's argument, you're like, that sounds good, right? And then you read something, oh, wait, okay. But, I do, because there's an opportunity cost. If you have money, and rather than put it to some sort of productive use, you give it to somebody who maybe will give it back and maybe won't be able to give it back, you've lost whatever productivity you could have from the money, which makes it charitable. Mm-hmm. So it is charity because your money is not doing anything and you are at risk of loss. Right. So you have done a charitable deed, and it is a moral thing. But I think his understanding of it, his characterization of it, hits it, it exactly the economic reality, which is if you don't get any interest, and you might not get paid back, because they're so poor they had to borrow money to keep body and soul together, you kind of just gave your money away. Right. So you're saying that the, the, the way that it's described in the Torah does seem to jive in, uh, with the idea that it's, should be viewed more as tzedakah um, because for the reasons that you explained that since you can't take interest and you really can't, if he loses the money, you really can't collect too well on it, um, then it's basically tzedakah. I mean, economists talk about opportunity cost. If you have an asset, you have a a brain, you have a whatever, and you don't use it, that's a waste. All of the non-use is a waste, and this recognizes that you it's moral to forego whatever you could have done with the money to help the guy out. Right. But you are losing something by letting him have your money for that period of time. Great. Jay and then Larry. And then Rod. Um, Jay, Larry, Rod. I I think that uh, I like, I agree with this uh, in general, but I think the way I interpret his remarks is that the morality aspect of this as opposed to merely or only the legal aspect implies the influence uh, or the animation of God in the in in this morality uh, especially when we go back to the scripture where it's clearly God's remarks that if you do this then if you don't do this etc and I think that's an important distinction because for those who say we can have ethics or we can have morals that are not influenced by God. I don't argue that, but I think they are enriched mm-hmm. and of greater value uh, and more meaningful when they are part and parcel of our relationship to God. Mm-hmm. So I think I think I don't know if this is what Professor Sprinkle is trying to do, but uh, by 
bringing that into this is just not a set of laws that have been legislated with punishments, what you should do, and here's the punishment, the consequences, etc., but elevating it, so to speak, into the realm of the divinity, into the realm of religion and belief, I think it takes it to another level, which is more meaningful because morals and ethics sometimes change over time, but our relationship to God presumably does not. Well stated. Right. And it does locate the moral and ethic that is expressed in the legal parts of this, you know, in something eternal. Um, and, you know, obviously if it's God saying it and you believe in that, then, you know, it gives it a much greater weight um, uh, and importance, you know, in terms of when you're looking at your own behaviors. So I said Larry and then Rod and then if so was somebody else. So, I mean, you, you asked, do you buy this? And I guess yeah. I'm saying probably something similar to Jay on maybe a little more simplistic level, but I do buy it because the, the statements, that the first three statements about mistreating, wronging, or ill-treating aren't really definable necessarily as law. Mm -hmm. They're just sort of saying this is the way you should act, and the punishment comes from God. Right. Because uh, what does it mean to wrong? You mean what does it mean to oppress? What does it mean to ill treat? Right. They're very general. Right. And then if you do that, the punishment is God will strike you down. You know, will take the sword to you, as opposed to when we had. You know, there were lots of laws that are very. There's a statement of what the law is, a statement of punishment. Is. So yeah. I think the two taken together really do. I think he he brings it together. To, and those the, the one that really becomes more a little bit more legal is don't charge interest on a loan, but then he goes off and explains why and gives the example and may, and does go for empathy at that point in the, in the text as to why you shouldn't be doing these things as opposed to focusing on the punishment for what's that. Right, and, and then also just to add to your point, at the very last phrase that they include here is an appeal again to God. Therefore, if he cries out to me, I, God, meaning will pay heed, for I, God, am compassionate. It's like, that's a weird. That's a weird law. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's almost again. It's almost like, well, God's compassion. You know, then we should we should mimic God and we should be compassionate. Right. That's what He's telling us to be. He's not telling you know when He says don't ill treat, don't. He's saying have some compassion for these people. Yeah. So. Right. Well, what I'm going to say is not much different from what Jay Orlary said. I think that uh, to have a nation of laws is not enough. Uh, you know. The Torah is talking about the Jewish people, the Israelites, that are a family. And the ideal family is beyond a nation of laws, the idea of compassion and love for one another and treating, treating people in a certain way. And I think that's, what, that's why I agree with what Sprinkle is saying. Yeah, uh, I think it's an important commentary to read and a, and a nice insight to this um, text that maybe people would gloss over without having it pointed out. So Bruce, and then I do want to, because you gave me a perfect bridge, so don't forget what Rod said. Um, also think about what Bruce is saying, but also don't forget what Rod said, because it's a good bridge to the first commentary. Uh, could you help us with some context on the loan? Because if the person is so poor, they need to borrow money to buy a loaf of bread. Well, you have any interest on a loaf of bread, and you know, it's just a loaf of bread. Or is this like, my family doesn't have a place to live, you should buy me a house. If, you know, in which case, if you're going to give that much money, and that 
get interest and maybe not get your money back. The how, only how the, is this bigger the, than a bread box? Yeah, the, actually, yeah. just to, to build on that, yeah. as a banker, um, you know, I was really struck by the taking the person's garment for the day. Yeah, like, really. What, what, yeah. Who wants that? Pledge is that? Oh, that's yeah. a great question. And there's an, I don't know if we're going to get to that commentary, but if not, please remind me because I can summarize it in like two minutes. Um, but um, there is an answer to that because the rabbis have the very same question, like what's going on with the garment thing um, from the point of view of the banker? Like why, why bother with it? If he only has his one garment, like just drop it. You know, what's with the, what's with the garment thing? So we can, uh, we can be, it's lovely on the other side of it. Like, wow, it's so nice that they say, you can't take the last thing the guy had. Like, I think it resonates with all of us how nice that the law is. But from the other side, it's like, okay, so let's say he is being nice. Why, why would he even take that? I mean, why would he even have to take it and return it? Uh, why does he just say, all right, you don't have anything, you can just keep it? Which theoretically he probably could, but um, there's, there's, there is a reason for it. That the end of the argument. There's a dignity argument, but there's more to it. And I don't. Pro- I, I want to put it on hold just for a second. Um, and I did lose my train of thought about... Sorry. No, no, no. It was about the banker thing. Segway context. Segway to number one. Yeah, the segue, but you, you had asked about what's the context. Oh, the bigger than a bread box. So the, what, what's the situation that the rabbis are generally imagining here? Is that part of what you're asking? Is like right. is so? It, is it a loan or is it a loan? I don't know which one it is. I'll tell you what the rabbis imagine. You could tell me which one you meant. So um, they're usually imagining like the working poor, for whatever reason. I don't know if it's a disaster or he he you know he lost his money somehow or his medical expenses. Nothing. He's working. He's he work, he's working so he's making money theoretically, but he's in the hole and he can't feed his family or something outstanding is going on and he needs money that he can't just generate from his his day job. He just doesn't have enough to do whatever it is that he needs to do. So he comes to you and says, "Look, can I have some money?" And then you know I do get a salary eventually over time. I'll I'll give you a shekel every month or something like that, and I'll and I'll eventually pay it back to you. I don't know which one that was, but that's the general idea here. Is this is a person? Small money. Small. I guess it's small money then. Yeah. Yes. Right. Living expenses. Not, yeah, yeah. Like not this not is a to start a business. And also to differentiate it from somebody who has no possible way of ever paying anything to anyone. That's like obvious, like community chest, sadaka category, right? That's the the tithe, the poor tithe, and all that kind of stuff. This is somebody who is working and just can't make enough at the time, whether it's there's undue like extra expenses or whatever. They they just need for something, they need money, and then you know they may have trouble paying it back afterwards. They thought that they would be able to handle the shekel a month, but their woes continue, whatever it is that their their problem is. They just get deeper in the hole. All right. Let's look at Martin Buber, um, very, very famous uh, 20th century Jewish philosopher and thinker. Would anybody like to read Mr. Buber on the top of 113? Commentary 1. It's English, folks. No one? Go ahead, Jay. The social element in the apodictic laws... Apodictic laws are usually taken to mean um, like indisputable or in, and self-evident. 
Is that how you lawyers have learned this? Do you know that phrase? Okay. So in, in, from, a biblical, from biblical law, the way I was taught that apodictic law means indisputable um, or self-evident. So. Is to be understood not on the basis of the task of bettering the living conditions of society, but on the basis of establishing a true people as the covenant partner of the Malachi. Malach is king, for those who don't know, yeah. According as the tribes are a people as yet only by God's act and not by their own. Just pause and like let that sink in or reread it because he writes very densely. If you had trouble following along with what he means. Just like let that sink in. Alright, keep reading. If, for example, it is ordered not to afflict the widow and orphan or not to oppress the sojourner, here there is word about individuals dependent on others, lacking security, subject to the might of the mighty. But the aim of such commands is not the single person, but the, quote, people of... That's uh, God. It's yud heh vav hey. That's the immutable <coughs> name of God. The people that shall rise, but cannot rise so long as the social distance loosens the connections of the members of the people and decomposes their direct contact with one another. The Melech Adonai does not want to rule a crowd, but a community. If you want to reread that again, and then at some point if anybody's ready to tell me what you think Martin Buber is saying, and then we can debate whether he's if he has a helpful insight or whether we just want to say, yeah, okay, thanks, Martin. <laughs> You guys are thinking, Rabbi Schwab, I didn't want to break my head tonight. You know, you're putting Martin Boover in front of me. Did you say previously that you thought these two were not aligned with one another? Yeah, I don't think that they're exactly aligned. I mean, they both are taking a non-strict legal reading. That's for sure. That's what they share. These are two perspectives that are non, non-traditional in the sense that... By the way, just to put the cards on the table, the rabbis do two... Not opposite, but... For those who know the rabbis, this is going to sound normal to you. But they two do two very different things with this text. One is they very much legalize it and make it a legal text, meaning they start defining everything that Larry said was unclear. Oppress means X. You know, they make it into a legal text, right? This means Y. These are the definitions it's actually saying, and then they start almost like codifying it. This is what it actually means. At the very same time, they do a little bit what the Professor Sprinkle does, and they, they, turn it, they it turn it into sermons, right? Not oppressing the stranger means all sorts of things, and it, you know, talks about compassion. You know, like, so they, they sermonize it. They, they make homilies from it, and they make larger... So they do both at the same time. These are non-legal readings of the text, but I think that they're different. But maybe I'm wrong. Tell me what you want to say, Jay. I think there, it's a Venn diagram, and there's overlap between the two. Okay, so say more. So the overlap is that I think they are both uh, advocating that the scripture here uh, very much implies the input and influence of God. Okay. And the connection to God. I think they both do that. I think the interesting thing about Buber, or at least then the part of the Venn diagram outside of the overlap is that he's bringing in this concept of community. Yes. That the, the connections and that 
these connections will only be so strong as they exist for those in the community that you would not naturally be connected to. Okay. The widow, the orphan, the poor, and the like. Um, not people who are like you, but people who are unlike you. Mm -hmm. um, and that there is a prescription here to make those connections that develops a community unlike what you've known before that in and of itself has value. Great. I have a slightly different read, but I think it's very well stated. You've almost convinced me. <laughs> so, I guess I was looking at the difference that Sprinkle was more talking to the individual, and Boover's saying, this defines your peoplehood, mm -hmm. that we're only as good as the worst amongst us. And if, if we allow the others, if we allow someone amongst us to oppress the vulnerable, then we're not a worthy society. Mm -hmm. That we collectively are, will be judged by how we treat the vulnerable. Very nice. Both well stated. It's very reminiscent to God's answer to Cain when Cain says, hmm. am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes, you are. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Anybody else? I, you know, I'll only add, like, is what I have to add is somewhere in the realm of what you guys were saying, which is what Boover is saying, I think, which is different than what Sprinkle is saying, but what Boover is saying, this isn't even in the realm of individual morality. It's not about, like, oh, it would be terrible to do that thing to that guy who's really poor and whatever. Not that the Torah doesn't also encompass that type of thinking, but in this particular place, he's doing it all in the realm of, you know, as, as some of you, both of you said in some ways, we are a kind of people that needs to bond together. And the only way that we are going to reach the ultimate of our connection with God, it's a very spiritual argument, the only way that we are going to really fulfill the covenant and get close to God is when we are one as a people. And the only way to be one as a people is to make sure that our society is structured so that everyone is cared for. And it's not really about the individual compassion that I have for Joe who's suffering. Um, it's about the ultimate goal of making sure we all feel connected. I mean, I love the line, I mean, I don't know if I totally agree with him. I'm just first understanding him, and then we can critique him if we want. I love the line, though, where it says, um, God doesn't want to rule a crowd, but a community. Right? Because right. in a crowd, you could still have laws and rules to protect individual people. Like, let's just let's exit the Torah and exactly what it's saying here and just go to, like, you know, you're in a crowd. Let's say at a concert or something like that. And there are, let's just say, the rules are, you know, don't bump into anybody, don't do this. If you see somebody who fell on the ground, make sure you help them out. You know, if you want to be a part of this concert, you have to sign this contract, that's what you're going to do. And that would be just about, you know, making sure people are safe and polite and all those type of things. But there's still a crowd. Um, so you could care about the individual, you could have compassionate laws about the individual, you could even imagine an ethical frame of how you would want to manage a crowd. He's saying, though, that these laws are about creating bonds in a community, but he has a very spiritual goal. 
The spiritual goal is to unite everybody because he believes that only when the, when people unite as this Kihilah Kedoshah, this holy sacred community, that's when we fulfill our covenant with God. For those of you who know other things about Buber, this shouldn't be very surprising for you. He's the guy who says there's the the I-thou and the I-it relationships that, you know, it's most of the time and it's normal where we respond to each other as an it. You know, just, I don't want to raise myself up, but let's just for a moment as teacher, you're coming here because you want to learn something. So I'm your tool to help you learn something. I'm not Michael Schwab, I'm the teacher. So it's, a, it's an okay it relationship because a student-teacher relationship is nice, <coughs> but you don't see me as me. You're not interacting with me. You're interacting with teacher. Um, you know, you go to a, a banker, right? You're interacting with the banker because the banker has an expertise and is helping you do something, right? You don't really see that, right? So he's saying that when you have an I-thou relationship, you recognize the divinity in the other person, the unique soul standing in front of you, and you really start to develop that connection. He wants to engender that connection as much as possible throughout all the people as possible. It's kind of like... And when everybody is connected, that's when we get elevated. Um, so it's, it's interesting. It, it gets a little fuzzy about spirituality versus ethics and compassion. I mean, they're all connected, so you start to gravitate. When you think too hard about it, it's like, how different are they? Um, but I think, you know, there is a distinction between them. It, it reminds me of a discussion I've had with my kids periodically about kosher. And they say, oh, this all seems so weird. You know, what is the point? Like, you know, if you step on the field and you play for the team, you wear the jersey. That's what we do. It ties us together as a team. And I'm not going to get into the rationale of the six hours or the one hour, the three hours. Or the, you know, that's, that is, I will admit, that is a little micro. Yeah. You know, he says that, you know, the if you step on the field, you've got to wear the jersey a little bit. He says that according as the tribes are a people as yet only by God's act and not by their own. Um, which means that, you know, the basis of establishing a true people is the covenant partner of the Melech, according as the tribes are a people yet by God's act and not by their own. That God kind of wanted us to be together in a certain kind of way. We didn't all like get together and make the baseball rules. Right? The rules were given to us and we were asked to go play ball together as a team. Um, so I don't know if that's the exact analogy, but it, you made me think but, of that. But, but I think yes, Buber is not really making this a, a sermon. It's not, an, it's not a moral. No, he doesn't even use the word moral. It's just the glue that makes the, the whole system work. He's talking in the language of covenant partner. He's talking in the language of um, the people of God rising up. Um, he's talking in, you know... Uh, connection with the king of, you know, the Melech, right? The king. Um, it's, uh, it's true people. It's a different language. So, any other thoughts or comments? I, I, I like, I always like insightful, interesting takes on things. I always, always do. And I like that he adds a spiritual element to it. I'm, I don't know how you feel, and I don't know if you, you care to share. It's important to you. I don't, I don't read the text the way that Buber reads the text, personally. Um, you know, I think it's true that there's a spirituality to it, obviously. I think it's true that when we care for each other, it unites us as a community. But his kind of distancing itself from any sense of ethics or individual compassion 
just doesn't, he's, sounds like the cold philosopher's uh, take on the text. So I appreciate the insight. I would love to integrate that into several other layers of the text that, um, when I read it, appeal to me a little bit more. So I accept what he's saying, but I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't stand on Boober alone. Boober alone, I'll fall over. <laughs> I think if you'd ask everybody in here to read the opening passage from the Torah that you had us read, and then said, what is this about? You would have gotten answers that sounded very much like this is a more moral society. I don't think you would have gotten the Boober argument out right. of anybody. Right. I think it's, it's not the natural reading of that text. I agree with that you. That doesn't mean it doesn't add a dimension to it, but it's... Well, yeah, it certainly did for me. It's not the first place we go in reading it. I agree. And, yeah, Rod? Well, just to be contrary. Please. Uh, whenever you think about uh, being a nation of laws and having compassion for everyone else, I mean, if there's no God, why, why is it necessary? Right, right. You know? Yeah. Why is, why is it... Why aren't we all Machiavellian? Right. I'm going to take what's mine, and I'm going to get as much as I can, because in the end, it doesn't really matter. Sure. Well, I'm going to live, I'm going to die, that's it. It only makes sense in the context of, you know, we are created. Yes. We're here for a purpose. The accountability so that, to me, that's says, I will punish you. But the God elements can enter, doesn't only have to enter through Martin Buber's way. Sprinkle himself and his moralistic argument also adds to God by noticing that who's the one who comes to the aid of the sufferer? It's God. God's the one behind it. And this was to Jay's point when we were originally analyzing this, is that he locates this moral ethical principle in God, um, which is also very powerful, as opposed to, sim not simply, as opposed to um, mainly that this is about just getting together as a community as opposed to moral compassion, which is what Buber's talking about. All right, so we can debate that. Um, I, I thought it was interesting. You know, Mel Melton brought a couple of sources that I'd never seen before. I thought those were pretty cool ones. Um, just real quick to get us familiar, I think it was nice that they put this in here on page 115. It just, it, it cites the different places during which the word ger is found in the Torah. I mean, there's a lot of them, but it... it that most of these places, I think the point is, is that um, ger is usually used as ger toshav. Ger toshav means a stranger who lives amongst you or a resident alien is how it's sometimes uh, translated. Um, so it's often used as stranger, but what is the word for converts in Hebrew? Ger. So um, it has both of those meanings. There's a debate amongst scholars as to which one is the original meaning with the heavy, heavy evidence falling on Ger Toshav, meaning a resident alien and a stranger, um, as opposed to a convert. Um, um, and so almost everybody thinks that's the original and the other developed out of it, as opposed to them being developed parallel, that it always meant both things. But, because um, certainly Ger Toshav is an, orig an original, meaning the, the resident alien, it's the question is whether... Geras convert always was kind of paralleling it. It was always a dual meaning, or whether that was like a, a later, a later addition. But it can make it. Sorry, one second. It can make it this this text a little bit more interesting and confusing, if ger could mean convert, right? So go ahead. Can a Jew be a ger in a, in a Jewish land? Can a Jew be a ger in a Jewish lands? Yeah. Um, only if the Jew is a convert. 
Um, I, I don't think it's, it would be hard to call a Jew, a born Jew, a gear in like a Jewish land. So, I mean, I, I, it doesn't mean I'm from Minsk and I'm visiting right. London, usually, as a Jew. Um, you know, that, that's not usually what it means. But then again, remember that in the ancient world, um, people were more divided by their ancestry and their ethnic group. So, like, Jews lived with Jews wherever they happened to live. There was, like, the Jewish neighborhood or whatever. So, when a Jew from Poland went to France, they went to, from the Jewish community in Poland to the Jewish community in France, and they weren't really considered a gear. They're part of, the, they're part of Israel. They're Israelite because... Their, their community is defined as the Jewish community, right? Yeah. Uh, I, was just gonna, I was just looking at the, in the box after you said it. Yeah. So I'm thinking, well, the first, site, you know, the first statement is, is Abraham in, Bresh, in uh, Beersheba, right, or in uh, Hebron buying a cave. And like, well, he's, he's a, you know, he could be a stranger, but he's not a convert. And then I think, well, wait a minute. I guess he is a convert. Right. But to the... To the Hittites or whoever he was buying it from, he's not a convert to them. them. So no. in their eyes, when they're saying you're a gear, they're not saying well, you're a convert well, to Hittitism. Right? They're saying you you're a stranger here. You know, like you you don't you don't come from here. Well, he's saying it. Right. He's saying it about himself, but in their eyes, he's right. saying, right. in your eyes, I am a gear toshav. Right. I am not one of you. Yet I still want to buy a plot of land here to bury my ancestors, which back then was very odd. Right. You don't bury your ancestors in your non-ancestral homeland, right? So, but that's exactly what he wanted to do, which is why this interaction was so strange. Um, I should have used a different word, strange or strange. It's so uh, atypical. So anyway, um, let's go to commentary number three. The Ralbag, a very famous um, commentator, considered a Rishon from the 13th, 14th century France. Um, let's see what he says a gear is. Will somebody else be brave and read in the English language? Please, Ron, thank you. And the gear. This is the righteous convert who is a Jew, literally a member of the covenant. This becomes understood from the other categories mentioned in context, means the widow, the orphan, and the indigent of Israel. The Torah forbids certain actions in regards to these because they are depressed and have no power. It began with the ger, for he only lacks the help of his family. Afterwards, it mentions the widow and the orphan, for they merely lack a way for behaving and conducting business, for they have no one who can care for their business properly. Afterwards, it is the indigent, for he is the most depressed of all. All right. What is the Rabag saying? What do you, what do you think are some of the insights that he's sharing with us about this section of the Torah? I think he's defining very basically. I mean, for one, he's defining, uh, is giving us a definition of gear. Exactly. And he says, this is the 13th, 14th century. He's saying gear is the convert, not the stranger, which is, you know, if I hadn't already shared with you that that was one of the definitions, you might be like, what? Did you, when the first time we read it, did anybody think that that was talking about, you know, a convert? No, because it said stranger in English. We didn't read it in Hebrew. But, um, it doesn't seem to totally fit the context, but he's trying to help you see a frame in which you could see it fit the context. And I'm, I would like to show you how he's done, how he did that if you did if you don't can't see it yourself. Well, just, it just you, you basically said it. It looks like he's contextualizing it to his time to the to those 
his students and his people who can understand it, that, that the concept of being a stranger isn't necessarily that relevant, but the concept of being a convert is something that's in their community. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to think about why he's interpreting it that way, which you gave a plausible reason that I don't know if that's the true answer or not, but a plausible reason why he might want to translate gear that way, interpret gear that way, that somehow that's a more relevant category to his current situation when we're dealing with the community that's in front of us. Like, the Israelites are no longer really, because they're not in power, right? They're no longer dealing with people who will be like, I want to live in the Jewish section, right? Because I don't want to convert. You know, this is before he translates it as gay. I don't want to convert. I want to be a Toshav. I just want to be a resident alien in the shtetl, right? You know, that doesn't happen that often, right? So we're not really dealing with too many people who want to be attached to the Jewish people. Um, It's not great to be attached to the Jewish people uh, during the Middle Ages. Instead, what might we be dealing with? We still might be dealing with converts for one reason or another, People do, even in the worst of times, there are reasons that people have wanted to convert, usually for marriage. Um, and uh, that makes a little bit more sense. I think also, maybe just taking a stab here, stranger is uh, to be somewhat ambiguous. In other words, mm-hmm. you may be from Philadelphia, so technically you are a stranger to this area, but once you're here and we get to know you and we talk and we find out that in fact you just happen to be from a different area, otherwise you're very much like us. Mm-hmm. Circumstance only has created a geographic distinction. Right. Whereas a convert, a widow, an orphan implies something much, a much greater contrast. We actually could be from the same area, but your life circumstance is so apart from my own that it really is an estrangement, if you will. Right. Yep. So, stranger, I think, is, is a little more ambiguous and can mean a lot of things. I think what he's doing, I'm, you know, um, trying to read the, read the mind of the individual, which is dangerous, <laughs> is to make it more concrete, more tangible as to what estrangement really is. And in this case, convert fits. No matter what, your circumstance as a convert or mine as a convert is always going to be very different, no matter how much we may have in common. Going along with that, I don't know if you can see this about the Rabbah here, but he's trying to make things as clear and consistent as possible. How so? He sees a categorical problem. Who are the widow, the orphan, and the poor amongst you? They're all part of the Jewish community. Who is the stranger? Not part of the Jewish community. So... Hmm, one of these things is not like the other. So I, he's like, okay, well, how, how can you have the same law for the Jew in your community as you do for the stranger? Which I would say, poetically, that's awesome. I love that it's a, the same law for the stranger as it is for the, the vulnerable in the Jewish community. So maybe me and Rahlbog, I'm not sure I agree with Rahlbog here, but for the moment, follow his line of thinking, right? He's like, one of these things not like the other. Oh, the gear is a convert. The gear is a, in, a vulnerable in the Jewish meat, like the other categories. And then what he wants to do here, and then Rod will be next, what he wants to do here is he's seeing them in like from the least vulnerable to the most vulnerable. Do you see how he ordered these things? So why did it go this way? We mentioned the gear first because the gear is an adult 
you know, who on their own decide to become part of the Jewish community, they have agency, right? But they don't have family, right? Because when they decided to come over, they left that past behind, which in the ancient world, it's not like today, where like you can convert, but you're still in a relationship with your Christian family often, you know, in, in the United States, Jew, people who convert from Christianity to Judaism, there might be tension, and in some cases, they're disowned, but in most cases these days, there's still a relationship. So, but then, you, lo- you basically lost your family when you did that. So there's a recognition that you're more vulnerable if things go wrong, you don't have your parents to lean on, your uncle to lean on, whatever. Then they go to the next stage. Well, what if you're an orphan or a widow, right? Then you're, you don't have, as Larry put it, the, the legal man in your life to help you with, and he mentions business, like financial stuff, to, to make things happen for you out there in the, in the, in the, in the business world. Um, so they're even one step more vulnerable. And then you have the poor who may technically have agency, but have lost their ability to care for themselves, and they're the most vulnerable. So he's ordered it nicely. Everybody's in the same category, vulnerable Jew, right? And it's presented in this way because it's like getting more intense as you read it along, all the way until the last one, which they expand upon, and they leave you very dramatically, which is God. God will hear the cry of the oppressed. I forget the exact language, you know, and so on and so forth. Well, bolstering that, that line of logic, you know, when we talk about interest, it's when you lend interest to my people as opposed to the other people. Uh, you know, we're just talking about members of the tribe. Right. Does anybody else have a thought about it? Is that is it just my people? Because yes, it is. My people, and then to the poor, my to, to the poor among you. So for those two distinct groups. Well, you mean in the to- Are you reading the Torah text or is Yeah. So there is a debate. There is a debate about whether we're talking about. The, 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 since it starts off with this, if you think that it starts off with the stranger and not the convert, right, and you try to read the text as a whole as a section, and then it gets down to the poor, is it the poor who are Jewish? You know, lack of better terms, they didn't have Jews, they Israelites or whatever. Or, since it's about the whole section, is it the poor among you, which could include a gear, right, a stranger who is poor, and there's a debate about that. Right, whether this is talking about um, a Jew, um, a Hebrew, or a non-Hebrew. Um, it's inclusive of the non-Hebrew. I think for many of our sensibilities, a lot of us, I love the interpretations that include the non-Hebrew. Um, but there could be a, a nice case for you know, reading it in a consistent manner that it's only about the Hebrew. Because if you compare it to other places in the law, in Jewish texts, especially in Leviticus, a lot of the laws about quote-unquote indentured servitude are when you can't pay back your loan, right? What do you do? You become somebody's eved, you become somebody's, not really a slave, but it's an indentured servant so that you can work off what you did. And that provided two important um, benefits to society. One, obviously for the person, the creditor, who gets some benefit from the fact that he lost all his money by giving this person alone and then not getting it paid back, at least he gets a worker. Two, if I have no money, right, and I have a family, and I have nothing, then what's going to happen to me? I'm on the street. But if I am living in your house, because you're my creditor, and I have to work for you, what do you have to do now? To provide for me. 
So now I have a place to live for my family. I have my meals each day. Um, and that's why there's that convention in the, in the tote, which, you know, when I teach this to high school students, they're like, why would anybody ever do this? But then when I explain it to them, they kind of get it a little bit. That that's why there's a, a possibility that a, a servant, after he's served his time, he's paid back his, he might say, you know what, I kind of want to, I like this arrangement. I like working for you. I like living here. I'd like to remain your permanent indentured servant. And for those of you who know what I'm talking about, you go to the doorpost and there's a ceremony where he gets an earring, basically, that symbolizes that he is a permanent indentured servant. It's like a symbol of voluntary choosing of being an indentured servant. But all of that is subsumed under the heading of only a, an, a, a, it's an ivri. It, it, only a Hebrew can do these things. Um, uh, uh, a non-Jew is in a different category in regard to the laws there. So how does that affect the law here? Uh, you know, you could say they're different iterations or you could try to synchronize them. And if you synchronize them, then this is only about Hebrews. Did I make sense? I lost my own train of thought. So, All right, great. Um, can we go to Casuto on 117? Number four. He's an Italian guy, much more modern, all the way up to the eight, uh, 19th, 20th century. Um, would anybody like to read Casuto? Go ahead, Simon. Thank you. Since the preceding paragraph contained drastic laws against alien customs. By the way, pause. That's he's telling you the preceding paragraph in the Torah. The Torah just finished saying, "Hey, don't do this because that's what the pagans do. Don't do this." Um, that's his uh, big lead-in as the context here. Go ahead. Sorry. The Bible wishes to indicate at once that this opposition is directed only against the customs and not against the foreigner. On the contrary, it is forbidden to wrong or oppress the stranger. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The reason given is purely ethical. You yourselves suffer the sojourners in a strange land, and you know the soul of the sojourner. Therefore, take heed not to embitter the life of the sojourner living in your midst, just as you did not wish the Egyptians to embitter your lives when you dwelt among them. The text uses the expression oppress him because it was stated above that it was particularly oppression that the Israelites were made to endure in Egypt and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. The admonition designed to protect the sojourner led through the association of ideas to other admonitory precepts in the interests of other social groups who resembled the sojourner in that they too were defenseless before oppressors, namely widows and orphans, who are usually mentioned in the Bible together with sojourners. You should not afflict any widow or orphan. Etc. Etc. What? I, I just realized something. I'm sorry for bringing this up, but uh, God is. Uh, the text seems to be talking, uh, if I can paraphrase, kind of like it's not fair for you to take revenge in a way. And yet, the punishment for this is blatant revenge because God is saying, if, if you do this to these people, then I'm going to do this to you. It's a really interesting point. Um, you could either see that it has. Um, you're going to lie in the, you know, uh, what is it? What's this expression about making bed? <laughs> I'm so tired. You made the bed, you lie in it. Yeah, that kind of thing. That um, if you are going to follow this idea of, hey, 
they embittered me or I was taken advantage of, so I'm going to take advantage. When I have power, I'm going to take advantage of. Then God's like, all right, you want to play that game? <laughs> then that's what I'm going to do too, right? So, you know, you do that and then I'm going to, you know, it's, it perpetuates it. So um, you could either look at it, not on the positive, but you can either see it as like, we are choosing to put that cycle into effect because we are perpetuating like, I was wrong that way, two wrongs don't make a right, it's the opposite, right? So, or you could be disturbed, which you can be, and sometimes things in the Torah aren't hard to reconcile and can be disturbing, that God is basically saying, if you do that, I'm going to do the same thing. He's, he's violating his own principle of two wrongs don't make a right. I mean, and then, then you're like, oh, you know, what are you going to do with that? Which is hard. He's going to make, if you mistreat the orphan, he's going to make your kids, or he's going to turn your children into orphans, basically, is what he's saying. Right. And so my point is, is you could kind of contextualize it, and there's probably more than two ways, but the two ways that I was thinking of is either to be disturbed by it, like God is being very juvenile in a sense about it, so to speak, please forgive me, um, that, you know, you do this and I'm going to do the same thing. Like, you did a wrong and I'm going to do the same wrong um, as a way of punishing you. That, that might seem troubling. Or you could say, it's really our choice. God's saying you want to perpetuate this and pass the wrong along, then, all right, so then it's going to keep being perpetuated. It's going to come back and bite you in the tush until you learn your lesson to break yourself out of this uh, cycle. And then I'll break out of the cycle too. So I, I don't know which way is the better read. I don't know the way you want to read it, but it's a really good point. It's a really good poetic justice point. Um, yeah? So a 30-second tangent. Please. So the widow and orphan thing sort of rang a bell, and uh, I can't say this for sure, but um, in Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, he charged all Americans, quote, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan. Mm. Just about a month before he was assassinated. I suspect he was reading Shemot. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, Abraham Lincoln knew his Bible for real. Yeah. He did. Um, and a lot of those phrases that we use definitely come, those examples that become emblematic examples of things, a lot of them come from scripture of some kind, whether it's New Testament or Torah. Um, but um, yeah, uh, definitely. So what, uh, if anybody, what I think is so interesting about Casuto here is, first of all, well, let's start with the basics. First of all, how does he define gear? How does he define gear? Um, stranger. Stranger. Right? So unlike his buddy Rahlbach, who came before him, Casuto is saying, so probably most original interpreters have all interpreted as stranger. Then Rahlbach and a bunch of other Middle, middle Ages folks, they start playing around with the idea that maybe it's a convert. It's not just Rahlbach, it's just Milton uses him as an example. Um, and then Casuto comes along now with both traditions, and he says, definitely stranger. Um, and what he says about it is, he looks at it in context, and what I find very powerful about it is he says, you know what, we just had a set of laws basically saying that the way that they do it, bad, right? And if we start to denigrate the way that other people do their, you know, carry out their business and the way that their culture exists and how they, you know, um, comport themselves religiously, you, could event, you might make the assumption that means that they themselves are less, too. And you might denigrate them as human beings and say, well, they do all these things that we're saying is really bad, so we can treat them poorly. And Kasuda comes along and says, God specifically drops this right here in the Torah after denigrating their practices to say, 
You can denigrate their practices and say their practices are wrong, but those people that live amongst you, even if they're still doing those things, you cannot denigrate them as people, right? They have rights. You still have to treat them ethically. And therefore, it's forbidden to wrong or oppress the stranger. And in particular, that's why it says you shall not wrong a sojourner right here, because we just kind of denigrated the way that they do things. It doesn't mean that we can um, devalue them as human beings. And then comes the appeal. The appeal part is, and you know what that's like. You know what that's like. You are in Egypt, right? Um, and he recognizes a, a human tendency, which is, is that this happens in a lot of cultural groups. When we're down and out and we're, you know, not in power, we dream of one day being in power. And then sometimes when we get in power, we use that power to sit to show our power and say, now we're in power, I'm going to do that to you, right? Because all this time you've been beating me down, now that I'm in power, I'm going to beat you down, right? That's not the way that we should be doing things. Casuto is saying that this is part of what this text is about. Remember, you didn't want Egyptians to do that to you. Don't do that to anybody else, right? Take heed not to embitter the life of the sojourner, as you didn't wish the Egyptians to do that to you. And then, as a number of you reflected earlier, he gives expression to some of your own thoughts. You probably did it just as well, if not better, but he wrote this. The text uses the expression oppress him. Sorry. Uh, what did I want to say? Oh, it's the last paragraph. Right? Um, to other administrative precepts in the interest of other social groups who resembled the sojourner, right? So it becomes emblematic of all people who are vulnerable, right? The defenseless, right? The, and, and then the widows and the orphans become the duality that's presented with the sojourner to imply anybody who's defenseless or vulnerable. It expands. It's like dot, 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 dot. It's not just those people that we're talking about. And that's kind of what Casuto does with this text. Is it sort of, is it, should we be bothered by the rationale for acting this way that we were slaves in Egypt? Well, why would it bother you? Because I, I think that I, I can imagine one, but I want to know why it would bother you. As opposed to him? Yeah, as opposed to me. <laughs> I know why it because could bother me. I want to know why it, it bothers it's, you. It's, it's, um, how do I... Because you had to go through this and it was unpleasant, therefore you should not do it again. As opposed to... It's wrong to treat people this way. Mm-hmm. Whether you've been through it or not right. is irrelevant. Right. So is it, should, should, is it, is, should we be, I'm, I'm, pick, I'm parsing here, but is that problematic? I don't know. I don't think that he's saying that you have to have experienced this bad thing in order to know what's wrong. I think what he's saying is you should have more compassion because you've experienced it yourself. It's also a nice way to put it. I think you're fighting people's instincts to take the easy path. Look, if you have power, it's easy to take advantage of people that don't have power. You know, it's the easiest thing in the world. The world ran that way for most of human history. And this is just saying, put yourself in their shoes. That, you know, I think that's what it means. Yeah. I also wonder if 
the difference between Casuto and Grawbug is conditioned on the times in which they live. I, I always think that so that's his commentary, personally. genealogical research in my family. They came from a small town in France. Oh. Until, and, and they were in that town since 1348, he died 1344, you couldn't move. The Jew could only change towns with permission from the king. Hmm. And if you were Jewish and you wrote a letter to the king saying, I want to live in a different town, what are the odds you're going to get it? favorable answer. Well, yeah, you're going to get an answer. So, <laughs> so when Raubach says Gear means convert, you know, in, in Casuto, in the World War II period and after, he's dealing in a world where mobility is much more of a given. Totally. And Raubach is in a world where you are not allowed to change the city in which you live. And by the way, the ancient world in that regard was a lot closer to the modern world. They didn't have the means of transportation to the same right. degree. But they actually, um, they moved around a lot more um, than, right. than in the it's Middle Ages. time, right. It was, it was um, you know, when Napoleon emancipated the Jews in 1791, part of the emancipation is you can now pick the city you'll live in. Absolutely. You know, in a world where a kid got an offer, well, they moved to Cleveland because it's a good job. Right. He didn't live in that kind of world. Yeah, no, for sure not. Um, for sure not. Um, I do want to come back for a second because I do agree with both Beth and Bruce's answers to Jay's query. I do want to just come back to, there, there are two different styles of defining ethics. Um, and one of the styles is, is, you know, you make principles. It's wrong to do X because it's wrong, right? You know, and whether it's wrong because some of the intrinsic properties or because God said so, this old Plato game, um, fine. Um, or, you know, it's experiential, like you experience pain and you say, I don't want to, shouldn't pass that on. But it's not an either-or game. So whether it's, you know, an illustration of or some sort of emphasis of um, or not, you can, you can operate under both ethical principles. And certainly the Torah does, because the Torah does state as principles some of these things that are just wrong. It says, don't do this. And then sometimes it appeals to us and says, don't do it also, I'm adding the also, because you experience it too, and it adds a bite to it. I mean, there is a bite to it. It's like, you know, you, you, you went through this, how could you do it? But I, I do think, going back to Jay's point, I'm going to be influenced by my times. I'm sitting here in 21st century United States with you folks, and I'm thinking to myself, when was the last time you know, in my memory, that we were oppressed. Now, sadly for us, we would go back to the Holocaust, right? Um, that was pretty harsh oppression. And for some of us, that's still very apparent in our families, right? Either because well, we still have relatives who are survivors, or it's only one generation back um, to certainly my kids and maybe some of yours. The Holocaust is something from a museum. Um, and at some point, the oppression from Egypt certainly was a really long time ago. And it's, the uh, you went through slavery too thing is like, what? I mean, yeah, our ancient ancestors did. So it becomes more of a paradigm of our historical collective memory 
knows what it's like to have gone through this thing. We know that our people suffered from that, and we don't want to be a part of somebody else's perpetrator history. Like, think about how we think about the Egyptians, right? We don't want to be that in somebody else's history. The mean old Jews who, like, beat us down. Um, so there's something to that, too, as well. But, but every lesson comes with a consequence. Either do it, or, you know, put yourself in their shoes, or do it, or I'll hurt you. Right. There's never just do it because it's a good idea. I don't know about never. At least not tonight. Right. There's no examples of do it because it's the right thing to do. Right, not in this. this right. Do it or I'll hurt you. Yes, or, yes, yes. You should remember. In our text, it's, yeah, the principle, just a standalone, is not here for sure. Um, in my last five minutes or so, um, I just want to show you, uh, I think it's a really nice text from the Talmud, number five. I'll just, I'm just going in order tonight. Um, if we had had time, I would have skipped to 11 um, after this, but I don't think we're going to have time for that. I'll just read. I won't uh, annoy you uh, with who's going to read in English for me. <laughs> and, and I'll just read the, the Bavli. Um, this is, um, for you or, you know, you were strangers in the land of Egypt, that whole thing that we've just been talking about. You should neither wrong a gear nor oppress him. That's the quote. Do not wrong him verbally. This is when the Talmud starts to define these things, right? Mm-hmm. Do not wrong him basically means don't wrong him verbally. <coughs> and don't oppress him means don't oppress him financially. So oppress means financial. Wrong means verbal. What's an example? I'm, I'm helping you understand the text. What's an example of verbal? Don't say to him, don't say to him, yesterday you were worshipping Bell and Naveau, and until now you had swine between your teeth and you were standing talking to me. Do not say such things to him, since he can say to you, for you are Gerim in the land of Egypt. So what's the assumption of the Talmud? What does Ger mean? Convert. Convert. Right, that's what I told you. Both are long-standing interpretations, right? This is the Talmud, right? A long time ago, 3rd to 6th century, they're already sometimes translating gear in this context, in the Bible's context, as convert. So what are you not allowed to say to a convert? You were a convert. Yeah, basically, don't say to remind him that he was a convert, and specifically in a derogatory way of making fun of him, like, you know, before you converted, you were worshipping those stupid idols. What an idiot you were. Right, and you were eating dirty pig or whatever. Don't talk to me like you and I are the same, right? You just the light bulb just went on in your head, or you just fell in love with that guy. You know, don't talk to me. You were you were rolling around. You were a caveman about five minutes ago, right? <laughs> These are different gods. So, that don't say such things to him, since he can say to you. Now, it's not just don't say such things to him. Don't say these things to him, because what can he say to you? You were slaves too. You were, and then um, a lot of them go. There's commentary on this that says not only were you lowly slaves yourselves, us. Well, what were I? Our. Um, it says this in the Haggadah. What were our original relatives? Idol Idol worshippers. In fact, our midrash says that Abraham's father was an idol worshipping dealer. He actually sold idols. It doesn't say that in the Torah. But according to the Talmud, right, which includes this Midrash, it, it is in there. So, anyway. Anti-church Right, anti-church interesting. <laughs> nice one. Good one. Two points for Ron. From this, Rabbi Natan says, do not point out in your friends. Now we've, like, totally generalized, right? I love when the Talmud does this. It's infuriating sometimes because it's hard to follow, but it, I think it's, it's fun when they do this. So we just went K 
Ger is a convert. This is really about when it says in the Torah, this, this is like so far afield from what we call the Pshat, the, the contextual meaning. Like none of us read that text and thought about this, right? I, I'm pretty sure, right? So first of all, I'll translate it as convert. Then it says when it says in the Torah, don't oppress him, it means don't throw his conversion in his face. The fact that he used to be a non-Jew in his face. That's what the Torah means when it says this. And further from that, Rabbi Natan says, this points out to us that you shouldn't point out a, a, a flaw in a friend that you yourself have. You know, don't throw stone in a glass house, the, the Talmud version of that phrase, right? That, and it seems to be saying, I'm adding this layer, it seems to be saying that for the most part, almost anything you can say to anybody else, can come back. It's, yes. Can it be a descriptor of you? Because to claim that the Jew speaking to a convert shouldn't even bring up the conversion because we were once slaves in Egypt is a very stretch broad category. It seems to be saying that the general principles don't insult other people or point out faults that they have. Because you know what? More than likely on some level they could point out the same to you. And is that how you'd want to be treated if, if you were displaying that fault? How would you want somebody to talk to you when you're not at your best, when you're revealing one of your faults? Um, we're allowed to talk to people about the consequences of their faults. We can even, quote-unquote, call somebody out on it in the right way, but not in the way that the Talmud is, is presenting. You don't do it like this. You don't say, you don't, you don't even belong in, in, the same, in the same room as me, you lowly whatever. That's not how we talk to people um, when we point out our flaws. We can, you know, there's a, a different way to dialogue about it. So here you have this, uh, to me, I think it's neat when a verse from the Torah and then the Talmud like, takes it all the way out to some lesson like this. Um, and that's part of what I love about Jewish text. Um, Beth, what did I say I would get back to you on? The garment. The garment. Um, why? Why he should return it. So I, I promised I would get back to you. So my last two minutes will be about the garment. And I, I could look at, uh, I won't try I, Afterwards, I'll find you which one and which source it is. But the summary is the following. They say that perhaps one of the reasons for the garment idea is that it encourages the person to pay back the loan eventually. So what if, if the example, and I don't know if you buy this, but this is what it says. So if the example is the working poor, right, somebody who does have a job, he just can't quite make ends meet, so he had to take out this loan and he still can't pay it back, and he's kind of down to his, like, his, his garment. And they define, by the way, the garment because of the thing about it at night and so on and so forth. There's a debate about it, but that, uh, that he, this is like the garment that he, he sleeps with. It like, keeps him warm at night, right? Um, it's his overgarment. It's not his, like, the shirt on his back. Not quite the shirt on his back. It's one step removed from that. So he's not walking around naked or something like that. Um, but you need to give him back his night cloak, that, you know, because they didn't have uh, he heaters and so on and so forth. So you need to give back his night cloak. Is is that if he has to each time, every day he has to work, and then he has to go bother to go over to you. Can I have my cloak back? Yes, you may. Okay. And I go back to my tent, and every night I have to face you again and say, can I have my cloak back, and then go back to my tent, it's going to keep it in mind that he's not off the hook yet, um, and that eventually he has to, to pay you back. And there's actually a claim that there's, even though it's undignified in some manner, 
it does, and you can debate this, but it does preserve his dignity a little bit that he's still a working guy and he, he, he has the ability to pay you back. Like he's working on it um, as opposed to he's just a charity case, you know. Like, yeah, just take your cloak. You're never going to pay me back. You're a bum. You know, type of attitude. It's like he's still working on it and as long as he's still getting his cloak back from you, there's an unspoken like confidence that the both of you have that eventually he's going to get back on track and pay you back. You buy it, I don't know. I don't know that that's the shot, the contextual reading, but it's it's perhaps interesting. All right. That's it. Okay. Have a good night.